the director of the Center for Free Speech Development and Developmental Disorder. Imagine trying to put that on a business card. And her and her team have been doing extensive research where they studied the cries of newborns in France and the cries of newborns in Germany. Now, I know some of you hear that and you're like, that would be really fun to study the cries of babies for weeks and weeks. That's what Dr. Kathleen and her team did. And 12 years ago today, November 21st, 2009, she gave an interview. And when she sat down and she shared kind of what they had learned, and what they learned was as they studied these babies and they digitally graphed the cries of babies in France and in Germany, they digitally graphed these. And they were trying to pay attention to every cadence and the pitch of the voice from crying babies. And the research showed that babies actually cry with an accent. So what they found were, is the babies in France, when they would cry, they, it, consistently, they, in, there was a consistently in flat from, uh, in France, it was from a low to high pitch, just like people talk in France. And the babies in Germany would consistently in flat from a high to low pitch, just like they talk in Germany. So what the research showed is that babies actually mimic the sound and the voices of their mothers which is wild to think about, right? I mean, no pressure for any expecting moms in the room. You are the first voice coaches your children will ever have. So if they don't make it onto The Voice or American Idol, it's a little bit your fault, right? And I also don't think you need to hear the research and go and tell other moms like when their babies cry that your baby cries just like you. You're, I don't think that would be very encouraging to them. But the research showed that for nine months, it's like babies are inside of their mother, not just being nurtured by what their mom is eating or drinking, but hearing and paying attention to cadence and rhythm. And when it comes to us being born into Christ, when it comes to us stepping into relationship with Christ, much like a newborn paying attention to a mother, right, we are called to pay attention to God. How does Jesus speak? How does Jesus move? What does Jesus do? This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not just that we are signing up to a belief system, but that we are paying attention to the way Jesus talks and the way Jesus interacts with people and the way Jesus lived while he was on this earth. So we've been in a series now for 14 weeks, and I want to welcome everyone who is here in person, all of you joining us online. Thank you so much for participating today. For 14 weeks, we've been in a series called Why Jesus, where we've been studying the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. After this week, we're going to hit pause. We're going to have a four-week Advent series. I'm going to come back around in Easter and do more with the last week of the life of Jesus. But right now, I want you to see how Matthew chapter 28 ends. If you've been in churches very long at all, you've heard sermons on the Great Commission. And I've heard people talk about just making sure people get it. Like, this is the great commission. This isn't the great omission. This isn't a great suggestion. This isn't the great observation. This is the great commission that Jesus gave to his followers and that Jesus gave to the church. So all of Matthew is building to this point where the risen Jesus launches a church and gives them a commission. And in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, what it says is Jesus says, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Or some of your versions, go into the world and make nations into disciples. That's the direct object of the Great Commission. The whole purpose of the Great Commission is you make disciples. And in making disciples, you're going to teach people and you're going to baptize people. But the purpose of the Great Commission is to go. 
Now you watch the way churches, and even us, the way sometimes we talk about uh, living out the mission of God is we send out messages of come to our church or come to our worship service or come be a, a part of our family. The first word of the Great Commission isn't for the church to yell to the world to come to us. It's to let the church know we are called to go to the world. Now there are times, I've joked around about what it would be like if we put out on our front sign, our front yard, if we said, hey, all of you out there, don't worry about coming to us, we are coming to you. And I don't think it would be a great marketing strategy, but for the church, it is our life strategy. That's what we are called to do. We go to the world and we make disciples of all nations. It's not that we make converts. It's not that we try to argue people into the kingdom. It's that we are trying to make lifelong disciples of Jesus. People, men and women, who are sold out for Jesus no matter what they do with their lives. Now, there's a book Dallas Willard wrote a few years ago called The Great Omission. It's a reflection on the Great Commission. It's a book about discipleship. And in that, he says this. One can be a Christian. And Dallas Willard was reflecting on Western culture, Western Christianity. He said, we have created a culture now where one can be a Christian forever without actually changing in heart and life. The right profession, like what you profess, positive or negative, was all that was required. This has now produced generations of professing Christians who as a whole do not differ in character, but only in ritual from their non-professing neighbors. And hopefully we read that and think, we can do better than that. So what I want to do today is I want to show you in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus gives one of the most radical bold messages about the church and it is directly connected to some of Jesus's most radical things he says about discipleship because if you take Jesus seriously you can't have a local church without there being passionate disciples of Jesus and you can't be a disciple of Jesus without being connected to a local church now, sometimes I talk about global church and local church. Global church is the big church. It's the church all around the world where God is over it. Their church, but, but the local church is like the Sycamore View, the New Directions, the Mississippi Boulevard, the Oliver Creek. There are a lot of local churches that are called to live out community life like what we are trying to do this morning in this space. Now, before we go any further, I want to talk just a moment about how I, like why and how much... I. I love the church. I've been a part of a local church my entire life. My dad became a preacher when I was eight years old. It wasn't on his radar until I was around seven years old. But even before that, I've been in church my entire life. And I don't just love the church because I'm employed by the church. I love the church because early on in my life, the church gave me a place to belong. I love the local church because early in my life, I was surrounded with an incredible support system who held me up, especially in my teenage years. It was a local church that affirmed my gift in ministry and my gift in preaching. It was a local church that reinforced what my parents were trying to teach me about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. It was a local church that continued to introduce me to sacraments that I need in my life for development and formation, like the bread and the cup that we take every week. For Casey and I, for almost 20 years, it's sometimes been the local church that has sustained our marriage and sometimes it's been the voice of God for us in our marriage as we have made big decisions in our lives. I love the church because it's what Casey and I want for our kids. It's a priority, not just because it is my job, but because I believe this to the core of who I am, that when the church is at its best, it is an unstoppable force. That when the church is reflecting the light of God like Jesus wants the church to do. Nothing can stop it. 
So I want to start in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18, for about a decade in my life, this has probably been the place that I go to, whether I'm here or whether I'm traveling, talking about the power of the church and engaging in community. Very few places have impacted me more than Matthew 16, 13 through 18. In verse 13, it says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And in a way, Jesus was like all of them. But what about you, he asked, What do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now I want you to see a little map real quick, all right? Hopefully you can see it if you're online. Hopefully you're able to see a map. And on this map, if you go to the next image, uh, and I just circled a few things on here. So the top circle is the Sea of Galilee, and that is where Jesus spent the large majority of his public ministry. Nazareth was close to there, Capernaum. He did a lot of things around the Sea of Galilee. Fed 5,000, fed 4,000. And way south, that circle that you see, is Jerusalem. So Jesus spent the large majority of his time uh, by the Sea of Galilee. And then a few times we have Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, tell us that Jesus would go down to Jerusalem where there were things that Jesus did sometimes and in ways he lived his life around Jerusalem. But in Matthew 16, 13, Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi, which was 25 miles north of Sea of Galilee, and you would never go through Caesarea Philippi to get anywhere. It's in the middle of nowhere. So you wouldn't accidentally get lost and end up in Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was a city 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. The King Herod helped expand, and when King Herod expanded it, he built a marble temple for the emperor. And then Philip took over, and Philip expanded the city more. And because his name was Philip, and he had a lot of power and an ego, he decided to rename the city Caesarea Philippi after Caesar, so Caesar wouldn't get mad at him, and then throw his name in there too. So it became Caesarea Philippi. Now, we also know through history, around AD 70, Emperor Titus went to Caesarea Philippi, and much like a, it was like a smaller gladiatorial games where they would throw Christians into a, an arena with wild beasts. So we know there were Christians who lost their lives in Caesarea Philippi. And of all places for Jesus to go to say, Who do people say I am? He took them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's some people who, who read Matthew 16, 13, and they may think Jesus was just retreating with his followers. But if you retreat with followers, you go a mile or five miles away. You don't go 25 miles away to a place like Caesarea Philippi, a city full of so much immorality, a city that was on the edge, right there on the edge of where the people of God lived and when it crossed over where the Gentiles lived. There was a cave that you can still see today if you visit Caesarea Philippi that many thought was a cave to the underworld. So they would offer all kind of sacrifices to try to appease the powers of darkness who lived in that cave. All around Caesarea Philippi, through, uh, around the cliffs, there were these crevices where they would place the god Pan, P-A-N, who was a universal god, but thought to be the god of shepherding, the god over flocks. And then there were also places that you would go in Caesarea Philippi to offer sacrifices to Jupiter, to try to appease Jupiter, who was thought to be the one who looked over all human affairs. 
So just with what I just told you about Caesarea Philippi, like this was a place that for all of Jesus' followers, like they were raised by a mom and dad who probably told them, if we ever catch you in Caesarea Philippi, you will be grounded for months. I mean, I joke around sometimes, like it's like my mom, like if I ever catch you in a Hooters, you will be grounded for years. So for them, for them to see, Jesus has taken us to Caesarea Philippi. There's nothing good that happened in Caesarea Philippi. And you didn't go through that place to go anywhere else. So Jesus took them there. Now, a lot of times when I teach Matthew 16, the one image from a movie that comes to mind is this one right here. Someone tell me where this movie comes from. Anybody? Remember the Titans. You can argue with me later. One of the top three sports movies of all time. So, all right, we can talk about it later. One of the things I love about Remember the Titans is it's somewhat a football movie, but it's, it's, it's a life movie. It's a movie about whites and blacks who were integrated. They had just integrated into the same school. They went away for three to four days to have two-a-days and three-a-days, so the football team is there. And the coach, Coach Boone, played by Denzel Washington, sees that they are not getting along at all. There's hatred. There's animosity. So one morning, he woke them up, and they went on a jog where they ended up at Gettysburg, the cemetery, where so many people lost their lives during the Civil War. And it's there that he gave a three-minute speech where he talked to his players of if we don't come together, if we don't deal with our past and move forward into the future, the same thing is going to happen to us. And this is a turning point in the movie. Like from this point on, there was a shift that happened in the lives of the players and how they engage in relationships. So when I teach Matthew 16, a lot of times I think about this image in the movie because Denzel's character, Coach Boone, could have given that speech on the football field after practice, or in the cafeteria while they were eating a meal. But there was something about taking them on a jog all the way to a cemetery where he was able to give them a speech where the content of the speech came to life in fresh ways because of the location. Jesus could have talked to his apostles about the content of who do people say I am anywhere. He could have done this on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He could have done this on a hillside. He could have had this conversation in a synagogue. But there was something about going to Caesarea Philippi to raise his arms and to say, who do people say I am? When you look around and all you see is immorality and all you see are things that look like they are lost, who do people say I am? So in the story there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, who do people say I am? They respond with a few suggestions. And then Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter knocked this one out of the park, right? Peter responds with, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. This is partly Peter saying, Caesar is not the son of the living God, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus responds by doing two things. One, he blesses him. Bless you, Simon. Because it wasn't humans, it wasn't, it wasn't education, it wasn't the synagogue that taught you this. It was a revelation that came to you from God. And secondly, upon this right here, I'm going to build my church. First time you see church used by Jesus. First time you see church in the New Testament. Upon this right here, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades don't have a chance against this. Now, it's debated over the years of what Jesus meant by this right here. This is where I'm going to build my church. There are some who think that upon Peter, that Jesus was going to build his church. And, and there are a lot of arguments, and we could have a conversation about it. I think overall what Jesus is saying is upon this confession right here, I'm going to launch a movement and there is nothing in the world that can stop this movement. 
Because when we confess and try to live into our confession of Jesus being the Lord of all, it's an unstoppable force. Nothing can stop it. This is full of courage. This is bravery. This is boldness. This is what it means to be the church. Jesus took them to Caesarea Philippi, and it's almost like Jesus said, do you believe that I can launch a movement, that even this right here that you're looking at, that this can't stop? Do you believe I can launch something that nothing in the world can stop? And then Jesus talks about the gates of Hades, that it's the powers of darkness that are setting up a gate. It's not the church that sets up a gate to protect ourselves from the enemy. It's the enemy who sets up a gate because the power of the people of God become this force. A gate is trying to keep the people of God out and a gate that is trying to keep everything it is holding bondage inside. And the church is a force to knock down the gates of Hades to set the world free in Christ. It's a powerful force. I read this and it inspires me to live a life in which I take risks. I don't want God to ever visit me and say, Josh, why did you not take more risk? Why did you always play it safe? Why did you play it safe as a dad? Why did you play it safe as a, as a minister? I don't want God to ever visit the Sycamore View Church and say, why did you play it safe? When I hear people or maybe I'm interacting with friends... And sometimes people will say, tell me about your church. Tell me about Sycamore View. And if I'm in a mill, I can unpack mission and vision and core values and history. If I have kind of an elevator speech I may use depending on who is asking. But one thing I love to talk about is how every decade in the history of our church, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, the last decade, there has been a risk that has been taken or multiple risks in the life of this church to go deeper into the mission of God. And some of those risks were embraced and some of those risks were rejected, but risk to try to live deeper into what it is God wants. I was reading a book by Mark uh, Buchanan a few years ago. Early in the century, the turn of the century, he wrote a book called Your God is Too Safe. And then he followed that up with a book called Your Church is Too Safe. And in the early pages of that book, he says this, when did we start making it our priority to be safe instead of dangerous, nice instead of holy, cautious instead of bold, self-absorbed instead, instead of counting everything lost in order to be found in Christ. There's a, a website that the world may know, and they do a lot of work on the first few hundred years of early Christianity. And on Matthew 16, here's what they say. Our schools and churches should become staging areas rather than fortresses. Places that equip God's people to confront a sinful world instead of hiding from it. Jesus knows that the pagan world will resist, but he challenges us to go there anyway and to build his church in those very places that are most morally decayed. I love how our location at 1910 Sycamore View affirms and challenges our theology and how our theology affirms and challenges where we live in our location, how we try to live out what it means to be the church right here. Most of you, no matter what direction you came to Sycamore View from this morning, you passed some form of blight, and you passed at least one, if not more than one, homeless people who were on, this, who were on a corner somewhere. 
And we made a commitment a little over 15 years ago that we want to stay in this community, a very transient community, to try to learn what it means to be the people of God here. And there are ways that we pray and try to press into our community here and you and your neighborhoods, wherever you live, that we are trying to be the light of God that moves into those places, knowing that when we do that, God is opening our eyes to see that God is already ahead of us in those places that we are taking God and moving with God and also realizing God's ahead of us. God's doing things we can never imagine, so it's a matter of joining God in what he's doing. And a lot of times this is where I will end a sermon on Matthew 16, 13 through 18. That Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi and teaches people what it means to be the church. That you're a force in the world that nothing can stop, so live like it. But if you see the next story, beginning in verse 21, it says, from that time on, from that moment on, from when he left Caesarea Philippi and now begins making his way all the way down to Jerusalem, from that time on. And then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, here's what it says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are, stumbling, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it, be, will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So right after one of the most radical, bold teachings on the church, Jesus follows, follows it up with a radical teaching on discipleship. The way it goes is Jesus talks about, here is my mission, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will die. In which Peter follows that up by rebuking him. The same one who verses earlier, the same one who was making this bold profession of faith about Jesus, just a few, few moments later is rejecting the mission of Jesus. Peter understood and believed Jesus was the Messiah, but Peter couldn't get his mind around the mission Jesus was now placing in front of him. You got Christians all over the world today who with their mouths confess Jesus as Lord but can't wrap their mind around the mission of Christ. So Jesus follows that up by saying, if you want to know what it means to be a disciple, I need you to follow me in this. I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. But I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to come back to life. And then I'm going to call you to live a life where you get right with God, but you live always thinking about the other. Where disciples live every day of our life denying ourselves, taking up a cross, and following Jesus. So it's not climbing the ladder of success. It's daily taking a posture of surrender so that Jesus can become more. And we're not going to take communion right now. But here in just a few minutes, we're going to hold the bread and the cup in our hands. And we're going to remember how Jesus did just what he talked about in Matthew 16. 
He went to Jerusalem and he died, but he didn't stay dead. And through that, he caused his people to daily die so that the life of God can spread all over the world. I remember hearing someone a few years ago say that the church is like manure. That sometimes when it's just in a pile, it can stink up the whole neighborhood, but when you spread it out, it can bless and nurture the whole world. All right, so here's what I want to do just for a moment. I want to give you 10 statements, and this is going to go quick. 10 statements about discipleship. And I'm asking you just from the front to the back, from praise team to teenagers and people on the back rows, I just want you to try to focus in on one of these 10 that you can take into your life this week to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is going to go quick, so you can either try to take quick notes, take pictures of the screen, trust your memory, or shoot me an email later, and I'll send them to you. Here we go. A disciple is someone who has been changed and is on mission. A disciple is someone who has been changed and they are on mission. Number two, a disciple is not a student of history. They are pursuers of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus isn't just committed to trying to read the Bible as a history book. They read the Bible so that they can pursue Jesus in deeper ways. Thirdly, a disciple has been changed by the past and is changed into the future. We're not just grateful for what Jesus has done that changed us forever. We have also been changed and we are being transformed into something that God can use in the future. Fourthly, a disciple isn't a disciple because they have a conversion moment, but because they choose to live a converted life. I like using baptism language, that you are baptized probably once in your life, but the rest of your life, you live every day, you try to live a baptized life, a converted life. Next is a disciple is, folk, is not focused on heaven, they're focused on Jesus. A disciple isn't just focused on the destination, but on the journey that is forming you for the rest of your life. We never fully arrive. A disciple isn't a part of a moralistic association or a political entity. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. And I used to teach, and I've said from this stage, that spiritual formation, there's a great hindrance to spiritual formation. If you were soaking in hours and hours of cable news and political uh, ideology throughout the day, and you're only doing a little five-minute devotional, that it's, it's almost impossible to pursue a life with God. But, but I, I think the way I would say it now is I think what can be more dangerous than that it's when people spend hours and hours a day soaking in cable news or political ideology and spending a lot of time reading the Bible because then they can't tell the difference between faith and politics. And what ends up happening, and we see this all around Western culture today, is where it can become so easy for people to leave their church because of their commitment to their politics, but rarely will people leave their politics because of their commitment to God through the church. The next one. A disciple professes and applies allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. The eighth one, a disciple refuses to enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense. Or what Dallas Willard says, that a disciple is not a vampire Christian who only wants Jesus for his blood. That we want Jesus for the life he gives us. A disciple is one not because they believe the right things, but because they act upon what they believe. And last but not least, a disciple is a person who is disciplined. There's discipline in their life to pursue Jesus. 
So I hear people say sometimes, the church is a collection of messy people. And maybe I've said that from, from this stage. I don't say it anymore. Because I think the statement, a church is a collection of messy people, doesn't, it, like a period, doesn't belong at the end of that statement. Because what I want to help us live into is the church, it's a collection of messy people, comma, who have been redeemed by Jesus. We're a collection of messy people, comma, who are on a journey to know Jesus better. So here's what I want to invite you to um, today. And we usually don't do it this way. But I want to ask you to stand with the bread and the cup in your hand. Most of you have probably never taken communion in a standing position before. And if you're online, if you're able to, great. If you're driving your car right now, please don't do this, all right? And with bread and cup in our hand and standing on our feet today, I just want to say a few things, pray a prayer. I'm going to give you about 60 seconds of silence standing where you are. I just want this to symbolize. We stand remembering today. And the same feet we stand on are the same feet that God is asking us to move this week, to move to God, to move to people. We remember what Jesus has done, and now we ask God to open our eyes to move where Jesus wants us to be. We take the bread and the cup to remember and to be changed and transformed. So today, we remember the past, and we are asking God today to help us to move into this week with purpose. So will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And God, I I hope and I pray that what I have taught today about the church and about discipleship has been inviting to people. That it has invited people into deeper life with you and that it has invited people to live lives of courage and boldness. That there is no force of darkness that can hold the church down. And this is all because of you, Jesus, that took on darkness. Like you're the first one that went up against the gates of Hades. And you won. And you died, and you didn't stay dead very long. And you have injected us with that same kind of life. So through the bread and the cup today, we say thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Take the bread and the cup and spend a minute or so in silence and reflection with God.